Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello and welcome to Tia House Talks podcast series. My name is Mahmoud Ababne and I am a research assistant for the Tea House project at the University of Calgary. Today, we present an interview of Fawn Parker by Mark Lynch. In this interview, Parker discusses her experience as a PhD student at the University of New Brunswick. The interview also explores Parker's career at different magazines and the founder of a music band. The conversation touches on the writing process within the limitation of different literary genres. Parker expands on some of her writing and previous interviews. The episode concludes with an interesting discussion of Can Lit. Mark Herman Lynch is a mixed-race writer, currently doing a PhD at the University of Calgary and presiding as the president of Filling Station magazine. Each summer, he works with the creative team at Wordsworth Youth Writing Camp to teach young writers. He resides in Mokinsus, otherwise known as Calgary, in Treaty 7 territory, Alberta. His debut novel is Arborescent, that was published in 2020. Fawn Parker is the author of Sit Point and Dump Show, What We Both Know, and the forthcoming Soft Inheritance, and Hi, It's Me. Her short story, Feed Machine, was nominated for 2020 McClelland and Stewart Journey Prize, and her novel, What We Both Know, was nominated for 2022 Scotiabank Giller Prize. We hope you enjoy this episode. How are you Hi. doing? Thank you so much I'm, for uh, joining us at the Tea House. Thank you for having me. First of all, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, we were just talking in our preamble about being mentally ill, so that's how <laughs> I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> mentally perfect. <laughs> Mark no, is perfect. I'm very much joking. I think it's actually part and parcel of being in a PhD program. To do a PhD program, you probably need to be a little mentally ill. Yeah, and then it, it exacerbates it, so it's kind of like a cycle. Exactly. It exacerbates it. You become more mentally ill and then it just... mm. And then you're more indebted to the program and then you do a postdoc. These institutions are just taking our money. It's beautiful. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Actually, I was going to ask my very first question was, uh, you're currently pursuing your PhD 
at the University of New Brunswick. Uh, what was the impetus for going back and how's it going so far? It's going great, actually, um, which is funny because I think this has been, I definitely won't get into it, but it's been the most chaotic year of my entire life. But I just keep getting A pluses. And this is like the first, like I'm the worst student I've ever known. And in my master's, I was just barely holding on. And it's just all working. And so I think there's something about this like chaotic state I'm in. I just have to harness it and just do this forever and like never look back. So it's going great. And I just, I don't sleep. Lots of, uh, I got really into Guinness. I've been drinking a lot of Guinness lately. <laughs> For me, it's sours, right? Oh yeah. Okay. That works too. <laughs> yeah. So you're, you're drinking a lot of Guinness nowadays. Keeping myself hydrated. Oh, I missed the other part of your question was why did I come to Fredericton? As you probably know, it's one of the only two creative PhDs in Canada. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no, there's something about the Maritimes. It was definitely between the two. It was Calgary or Fredericton, but I just, I don't know. I've always been drawn east. It, it sounds like a beautiful, beautiful space and a beautiful campus. Yeah, it is, yeah. Go for it. There, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, like uh, the, the PhD program, like at least for me, uh, it was an opportunity to kind of just sit and write right? Is that kind of like how you're taking it? Or are you kind of more towards the professor track, do you think? I'm 0% professor track. And I mean, yeah, I I thought it would be time to write and to be paid to write, which is sort of how everybody talks about the creative writing PhD. It turns out there's no time to write and there's no money, but I'm still sort of wrapped up in that dream that one day that will happen for me. I just, I'm still waiting to find out if I get shirk. So fingers crossed. Um, But for now, yeah, you know, it's hard to afford the Guinness and there's no time to write. <laughs> That's why we have credit cards, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's for every sour that I buy. It just goes straight to my credit card. Oh, no. One at a time. <laughs> That's why I have a really, really high limit on my credit card. Good. Also, actually, you're really, really busy. You have a lot of different things on your plate. So you're the co-creator of Bad Nudes Magazine, established 2016, is that correct? Yes. And it was characterized by Paige Cooper, I love Paige Cooper, uh, as terrifyingly hip. And you know something's <laughs> really hip when it's terrifying. And especially to Paige. Especially to Paige, exactly, who's super yeah. hip himself, right? Yep. And Bad Books Press, which is established in 2018. Why did you decide to go into magazine and book publishing? I was working for the Puritan, who are now called the ex-Puritan, in 2015. And that was sort of my first experience behind the scenes on a magazine. And I was dating somebody at the time who was also really into writing and editing. And so it just sort of made sense as a project for us. And I think we made a WordPress, like a free one. Mm -hmm. Uh, I called it Bad Nudes which was also the name of a band we wanted to start and we never did. And I don't know what got it rolling, but it just really started to work and it took off. And our Montreal community sort of all started publishing in it and coming to the readings. And it it was just like, I think a perfectly serendipitous situation. It was like very lucky. And I still think I benefit from it. We don't do it anymore, but I still feel the the ripple effect in my life. Right. You don't uh, do Bad Nudes magazine anymore? No, we left that behind sadly oh I'm sorry to hear that yeah things uh things pile up and then sometimes things have to be severed yeah absolutely is it the same thing with uh, bad books press yeah we actually we have one book in the works that I can't talk about but it'll be our last I believe so there there's one more and it's been years and I do think it's going to come out but I can't say when and I can't say who it's by but if it does it'll be amazing Yeah, I mean, uh, the anthology that I was looking at, I didn't get to get my hands on a copy of the anthology, but you have people like Tia Matonji, you have mm-hmm. Cody Tano, whom I love, right? Love Cody. So you have all these wonderful writers in that uh, anthology, and you can't get yeah. your hands on it because it's sold out. It is. I would love to reprint it. If there's a demand, which it sounds like there is, then maybe we'll reprint it. 
<laughs> there very much is. Uh, but why did you, at that time in your life, decide to go back to like the physical print when everybody seems to be going to like digital? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of us have that nostalgia for print for that very reason. And I think there was a challenge in it because it's so difficult. Like it's so expensive. Going digital can mean it's, it's not ever free. You know, you're doing a lot of free labor when you're working digitally. But I think we sort of, we were inspired by that challenge of like, can we even do this? Can we do a full print run and sell it out? And when we did, it was so motivating that we just kind of kept going and we kept using that money. We would make next to nothing and then use that and then make it back. And it was just kind of like this rolling ball. Yeah. And then once you do three years, you can get on the Canada Council train and then potentially get funded true. that. It's true. Yeah, we never did, but the dream was always there. <laughs> so the dream is just in hibernation. It's still in me. I still have hopes for bad news. We'll see. Yeah, it, it might take a, it might make a revival. It might. I'm too busy right now, but... You know, I would never say no. I think you should, you definitely need another hobby and obligation, especially during a PhD. Yeah, I definitely need more on my plate. I think I'm a little too loose, you know, too relaxed. Uh, which is why you decided to start uh, Pet Play, which is yeah. a uh, band of yours. Yes, uh, we were, we started in, I want to say 2019 in Toronto. It's myself and a poet, Joshua Chris Bouchard. It's like the best drummer I know, best poet I know, mm. best person I know. We classify ourselves as uh, piss core. Piss core? Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. We started out, our dream was just to start a two-piece punk band. It's me on bass and him on drums. And he also sings or yells, whatever you want to call it. We've at times identified as like a BDSM band. The whole thing to me feels like a joke, but it's also very beautiful to me. Yeah, absolutely. Because when I was looking for pet play, I found a lot of BDSM pictures of yes. those, those leather masks that are kind of, <laughs> of dogs, right? It's hard to Google us because pet play is just a thing. Oh, it is a thing. And it's yeah. a thing I've been missing out on until today. Yeah, it's not too late. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, why did you decide to make a band? Well, we were in another band at this time. I've been in a few bands in my life, but I've always been a supporting, like I primarily play bass. So I find I, I'm not often the key songwriter. Um, and we were in another band with, his name's Alex Hood. He actually runs House of Decline. I'm, I'm just going to say it for it. I feel like people in the audience will know what that is. It's a webcomic. We were in a band with him called Jack Dump, <laughs> another great name. And then Josh and I started a project where I was writing for the first time, sort of the shell of the songs. And then we were working together. And I feel like of everyone in my life, he's a person I can work with unselfconsciously. And that's, that mm. kind of opened me up as a musician. That sounds so amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love the band. It's awful. We're terrible, but <laughs> I love it. That's pretty good. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it sounds exactly like the sort of the punk that I used to listen to when I was a kid. Oh, that's flattering. Yeah. Uh, like when I was 18, 19, 20. Mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Heavy exactly. Kind of driving, um, heavy drums, right? And yeah, kind just of, awful, just awful. Or awfully awesome. I'm just going to switch focuses now, right? Into yeah. kind of like the more the writing aspect of it. Congratulations on being long listed for the Giller. Thank you. That was thrilling. <laughs> it's hard to put it any other way. It was truly, um, it was, I mean, it was the best moment of my career. Definitely. And so deserved. Thank you. That's nice. The book is so beautiful. And oh, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, later. But right now, I just want to talk a little bit about your writing process. I was just reading around your material and you have a poem published in 2015 through The Quietus called yeah. Which a Small Item is Found. Oh my gosh, really going deep. Oh yeah. 
I, I went to the full Nardwire extent here. Yeah. So where a character mistakes an object found on the beach for their yoga instructor. Later, mm -hmm. this becomes a scene in one of your short stories called Vacation with My Mother, published in Looking Good and Having a Good Time. How do these sort of genres, poetry, autofiction, nonfiction, prose, inform each other in your writing practice? That's a great question. You know who you're reminding me of is the guy with the with the hot wings. You're he's also good at asking questions. Okay, I think as a writer, I care the most about fiction, but it's the hardest for me to generate. So for me, generating fiction is almost like essay writing where I sit down with a plan and I do it. I think writing poetry is something I I always think that I don't do. I never identify as a poet, but it's the one that comes out of me where I'll be walking and I'll get an idea and want to write it down. So I think what happens in a case like that, where you'll see something in a poem and later it'll be worked in, it's because the poem part must have been the seed that occurred to me. And then when I'm writing the fiction, I'm just desperate for material. And if I'm at the bottom of the barrel, I sometimes will just draw in other things. <laughs> Well, because so I can't believe you caught that. Well, it's so beautiful because I see how you create little moments. You're very good at creating scenes, capturing little moments. I'm going to actually jump to what we both know for this example, right? Where sure. you, you have these beautiful vignettes, these moments like, for example, with the father's house that's torn down and it's like a doll's house because half of it is gone or mm -hmm. walking the dogs in the snow when one is hit by a truck or the scene with Hillary and Pauline in just a big apple. So yeah. how do you go about, and not the not New York, but a big, literally big apple. Yeah. So how do you go about craft, crafting these scenes? How do they come to you? I think they start to come to me. Well, I, I think it, it works in two different ways. When I'm beginning a project and I don't really know the world yet, I think some of that stuff comes from real life. So that apple that you mentioned, for example, it's on the side of a highway in Ontario. And my mom and I used to go on road trips when I was a teenager and we'd always drive by it and talk about going in, but we never went in. So I always wanted the image of that just like striking huge huge red apple in a book. But once I get to know the world and the characters and they sort of start to feel real to me, I think that's when I get the flashes of those moments organically and I'm not borrowing so much. So that scene that you were referencing where the house is cut in half, I just felt on a sort of visceral level that a man who's losing his memory, I could see that really hitting him, that maybe he has a shred of something tied to that house that just can never... I was always thinking like, what's left of him? If it seems like everything's gone, maybe there's, you know, there's still a person in there. And I thought that's something that we never lose is like the first house you ever lived in. I think it's very close to home. Sorry, that's such a bad pun. I didn't mean. <laughs> I didn't even notice it. So no, it's perfect. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> yeah, because uh, you do a lot with sort of memory, dream, and then what is reality in what we both mm -hmm. know, right? And particularly near the end when everything is evolving. So why did you want to write a story about memory? What drove you to that? I think at this time, I promised myself I wasn't going to talk about Me Too because I, I always see my name and hashtag Me Too side by side, which is nothing to be, you know, I'm proud of that. But I, at the time I was writing this book, that's when it was in a lot of the conversation, the sort of cultural conversation. And this idea of men either admitting to things or apologizing or denying things. And this, I think the denial of abuse was something that really stuck with me as a story I wanted to think about is like what as you said what is reality so if someone hurts you and says it never happened did it happen as much as if they admit it or is admitting it a level of of creating truth or and you know you don't want to rely on your abuser to to get your own truth but there's an interplay there and I think I really wanted to explore that and what that means and then if a man isn't denying it but is literally forgetting it so this father horrifically abused his daughter but he doesn't remember. And so did he do it? 
or is he absolved or is this a new man? And so I think that was something that I found really fascinating. And I just, it, I, the more I pulled it apart, the more interesting it became. Just kind of like uh, building off of that. But it, it's interesting how, for example, yeah, whether or not these, this abuse happened, but also it seeps into the character's capacity to even like judge their own reality, whether an action that affected them greatly happened or not. With the memory and reality and what is real and what's not real, you kind of build it into this idea uh, around the the rewriting of story. So the character is writing the or the memoir of the father. Uh, it's such a beautiful kind of structure if you think about it, because essentially what the narrator is trying to do and realizes at the end is she's trying to dismantle the master's house using the master's tools ostensibly. And then there's this great part where you have a part of the memoir that is written at the very beginning where the father is characterized as a lecherous pig. And then that part is rewritten later on. That's such a beautiful like technique. Mm. I would like you to maybe talk a little bit about why you chose to absolve the father in such a way, or maybe not you or the character, Hillary, chose to absolve the father in that way. I mean, that part was, I have to credit my editor, Kelly Joseph at MNS was the one who suggested putting in actual snippets of the memoir. I think in the initial writing process, I was afraid to include, I just, I feel like I've, I've seen that done so many times in ways that have just been horrifically bad. And I don't want to be the one to say that I didn't do a horrific job, but I try not to. So I was really resistant to the idea of including something like that, this character Hillary's voice. But then I thought, well, it's still in her voice, like it's her writing. And I and I also, I really respect Kelly and so I, I trusted her and tried this exercise and I think it did work with the manuscript. But I think the progression through the different voices, the three different versions of that, that same moment were just reworkings of how maybe she's coming to terms with her father. And so there's the initial anger of like, as you said, writing him as a pig. And then the sort of in between trying to imagine what he would feel like in a more honest way. And then, yeah, the third way is it's quite a gentle hand for especially as the reader gets to know this man. I think it's interesting for them to experience the softening as they might be growing less and less fond of him as a person and, and that tension. And so I really wanted the reader to sort of resist the idea of Hillary ever forgiving him and then to maybe worry at times that she might be. So uh, you said in a CBC interview that uh, a character comes to you before plot. So the character is kind of like really something that's, I guess, easy for you, would you say? Yeah, I think that's the part I really like. So how do you go about putting all of this together to create a cohesive story like uh, what we both know? I think it's really hard for me. I think I've always, I've really struggled with plot ever since I started writing. And maybe I'm just now starting to begin projects with plot first because it's been so painful in the past to sort of have characters and, and force them into something. But I'm just so much more drawn to characters. I think the more I get to know a person through little things like their routines and how they talk. And I love dialogue too. I find the plot to me just not the interesting part when I'm reading either. But I know that, you know, there's an industry out there and you have to sell your books. Like I know how important this is to everybody else. So I think what I do now is I try to strike a balance where I figure out who they are and maybe I sever things a little bit later, closer to what the plot is going to be. And then I have all that for myself, the process of getting to know them. And then there's always a moment where, you know, I have to admit defeat and say, okay, something has to happen now. I know what you mean. I find that, for example, my writing style is all 
I've always been like this, is just to write, 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 and the character's always in their head, and mm. they never get out of their head. Then you have to decide, okay, well, how do you get them into the real world? I, I find that you, you do that very, very well, and particularly, you do it in the present tense, which I find actually very difficult for some reason to write it. Um, oh, interesting. Why, why did you choose the present tense for this novel? I think this one just felt so moment by moment that I don't think that this woman had any foresight at all. This character felt very, like, even just maybe making her tea in the morning was like she didn't know what was going to happen next and so I think it felt present tense in that way it definitely felt first person and maybe for me I'm not sure I've written first person that wasn't present tense I could be wrong but I think those two go together for me in, in my voice oh I see is set point also written in first person god I don't remember I think it's first person present tense yeah oh so there's a correlation between the first person present tense and the I'm, I don't remember <clears throat> I haven't opened that book in years I think it came out four years ago now I'm afraid to look at it I hear it's really wonderful Page thank you <laughs> It's one of the ones book, one of the few books that I uh, couldn't get because the the bookstore said they were going to bring it in, and then it just never ended up happening. So I was like, oh, "Okay, I should have just ordered it off of Amazon." Yeah, well, actually, ARP, the publisher, um, Arbiter Ring, doesn't sell on Amazon, which I think is very noble. They took all their books off. Wow, that's really great. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It means that set point is a little bit more uh, hidden, but at the same time, if you look up set point, Fawn Parker. You can find it because I found it on the website. Oh, great. Yeah, I believe ARP and All Lit Up is like is a great indie distributor too. Oh, I'm just trying to plug everybody that I, I like in the industry, but there's so many good small people doing so, not small people, small uh, publishers and organizations doing so much. And small in stature as well. And small, yeah, there's a lot of short people doing <laughs> a lot of heavy lifting. <laughs> Well, I guess it comes back to the question that I had about why do your own small press? There's so much community that is involved in that, that is connected to it. So for example, I work with Filling Station Magazine. It's just, there's so many people that are involved in that. There's so many independent publishers that are involved in that. Mm -hmm. There are so many bookstores that are involved in that. You you talked a little bit about kind of your experience in Montreal and now you're in Fredericton. Are you sad about leaving Montreal? Yeah. I'm sad about Montreal and Toronto. Those are sort of my joint home. Um, I grew up in Toronto, but I moved to Montreal when I was 18. So I feel like I became an adult there. And now in Fredericton, there's a lot to love. I will, I'll start with that. I love Fredericton. It's beautiful. The people here are amazing and very tight knit, but it's definitely, it's so different, especially where I am. I, I guess I'm still in the inner city, but like if I want to get a coffee, it's a 45 minute walk. And I know I sound so Toronto, but like that's the first time in my life. It hasn't been just around the corner and it's kind of a driving, more of a driving city if you don't live downtown. And so those adjustments, just like not being able to walk to a literary event every, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, mm. it's changed my life in in little ways. I'm, I'm starting to build a little bit of a community, but there's definitely less of us here. Yeah. I find that community like is so, so important. I mean, mm -hmm. even just for like the little events, like I was just watching, I was uh, seeing some of the writing about the launch of Bad Nudes magazine, where it's somebody else in the community who's writing about this experience and has pictures of people seemingly in a living room. What does that kind of uh, community do for your writing? I think it's just like, that's where the life comes from. I was thinking about this recently, or actually, you know what? Chris Burton was talking about this on Twitter. I think that the writing itself is so lonely. It's also, of course, a beautiful thing and inspiring and, you know, it's all the great things. But it's lonely and difficult. It's really hard work. And often we do it in addition to our other work. So you work a nine to five and then you finally start writing. So you finally start working. I think it can kill a person. And so then you have this community of people who not only understand, but they're, you know, they think similar things. 
They also think really interesting, different things. And that to me is where I'm like alive when I'm around these people and listening to them and talking to them and having Cody Catano in my city, for example, and Mary Germain and all these writers. It's just like, that's the beautiful part to me. And then going home and hunching over a laptop is just, you know, that's like the meat of the work. Yeah, I, I used to just go to a bar and have a sort of writer's group, right, where everybody would just meet and we would just sit and write in that bar every Sunday afternoon. And it was, Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, it's fantastic just to be able to share yeah. your experience and share a Guinness. Exactly. <laughs> the famous Guinness. The famous Guinness. Uh, so... I want to go on to your poetry a little bit. Mm -hmm. So your first book of poetry called Weak Spot came out with Anstruther Press. And soon you'll have another book of poetry coming out called Jolie Led. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes. My editor and I just renamed it, actually. So now we're calling it Soft Inheritance. It's, yeah, it's my, it's my debut, you might say. And I'm a very, I'm a nervous poet. I think I'm a bit afraid of, I don't know, like inserting myself into that community. I think writing novels for me is something that I've always known I wanted to do it. So there's the nervousness, but it just feels like I, I just have to go out there and try it. Mm -hmm. um, with poetry, I think I'm a little bit more hesitant. It's mostly about my experience caring for and then losing my mother who died of breast cancer. And so it's like very body based um, and like visceral and just all the, what's that poem? Oh my God, I'm going to forget everything about this there's a poem about going into a, a lady's dressing room and finding all of her disgusting things it's like an old old poem and I don't even want to guess at the era because I'm I'll just reveal myself to be an it's idiot Pope. Maybe. maybe I think it's called the lady's dressing room it reminds me of that I just I tried to write about all of the disgusting parts of being a woman because I think especially with breast cancer it's sort of lauded as this like beautiful cancer it's the pink one with the ribbons and it's all about bras and wigs but you're also there's something in your body killing it and I think that's I don't want the reader to ever forget that because my experience of I've you know never had it myself but watching somebody die of breast cancer was that it's awful and dehumanizing and disgusting and and humanizing so anyway so that was a long tangent. That's what it's about. <laughs> you have a poem actually in Weak Spot called Golden Rays of Chemo. And I thought the mm -hmm. way you portrayed people going through chemotherapy in that kind of moment was actually quite beautiful because there is a little bit of one levity. So it's not all people who are going through chemotherapy, like they have moments of joy. There's ups and downs, right? There's not just all the darkness. It's also, there's a deep, deep cutting sadness underneath it. Mm -hmm. And I think you're very good at capturing this quiet sadness and disaffection with the world. Mm, thank you. Going into soft inheritance, how did you build on your fiction? Well, that's, that's a good question. I think a lot, lot of my poetry, I try not to write fiction when I'm writing poetry. I think this is something, especially in my PhD, because now I have to take it seriously. I'm a, you know, I'm doing graduate workshops in poetry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you weren't taking it seriously before and you were up for long listed for the Giller? Man, I, I guess so. <laughs> <seriously. laughs> I've, I've been trying to write poem poems because you know I don't know anything about form I don't know anything about poetry at all outside of just doing my undergrad and master's and so I think the way that fiction can inform my poetry at this stage in my development as a poet is just trying to strip it away as much as I can and kind of clear away the prose I often want to write my poems in four line stanzas and they it just end up being a story. So I think in this collection, you might be able to even trace my evolution of there's probably like little prosier poems. And then by the end, I think it gets a bit weird and a little looser. And I feel like I relax a little bit as a writer. Wonderful. Also, you changed it from Jolie Led 
to now soft inheritance. I was actually really excited because uh, you're, you, you say in an interview uh, with the frozen mammoth, I believe, that oh my you lived in uh, Montreal for quite a while, but your, your connection with the language hadn't really kind of like developed. I think this was a, it's like five years back, right? Yeah. Um, how is your connection with the language, the French language now? <laughs> it's about the same. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I worked in a bar in Montreal a couple years after that podcast, so I probably learned a little more. You know, I learned all the names of the different cocktails, but the French title of the poetry collection was that was also borrowed from my mom who taught me that phrase which means ugly beautiful or pretty ugly and she'd always say that that that's what we were she'd always be like you know women like us we're like we're only beautiful because we're a little bit ugly it's our curse and our blessing <laughs> and I always carried that with me I thought like <laughs> it's like in a way a very lovely thing to say but it's also just like crushing when you're a teenager <laughs> yes actually that is very crushing yeah. It was a good title for those poems, I think, for that reason. Right. Absolutely. And it, it still talks about those same type of elements. Because yeah. your work really does a great job. Maybe I'm not talking so much about Dumb Show here, but uh, it does a great job focalizing around female identifying speaker and yeah. showcasing their reality, particularly as one that is existing almost not as a part of, but almost in opposition to this, these horrific male characters, right? Um, yeah. I'm thinking about Dumb Show, where you have that sort of the, the, the professor, Dr. Barry Martin, who's, you know, chauvinist philosopher. Um, <laughs> yeah. in, uh, what we both know, right? And then the uh, disaffected uh, male characters in Set Point. So how do you see these strong female bonds functioning against this sort of overarching grotesque patriarchal structure? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm actually glad that you're asking me this now and not a year ago. I think that I've finally reached a place in my life where politically I am against the patriarchy, as you said, but not against men. I think I've been, I've had my years as a man hater, and I think I'm ready to you know, exit my shell. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I had to write my way through that. And I, I feel like each of those books that you just mentioned works through my relationship to men in a different way. Um, and there's the familial relations and there's authority and there's sexual assault in the porn industry in the first book. And I think all of it together, you know, there's a lot of bad guys out there. I don't know if you've heard, but I, I don't want that to inform what I'm writing and who I'm writing for, because I don't write only for women. I hope I know that my books are often pink and, you know, they're marketed to women. But I think that, yeah, I think these characters themselves, I hope embody the values that I think we need to weed out of our society, but we don't need to weed out men, just for clarification. It's interesting how, for example, it's, I, I think you're great at showcasing the ways that institutions have been bastardized by mm. powerful figures, right? And yeah. when we think about it, it's the same thing, I think, with Can Lit itself. Um, yeah. I don't want to get it to kind of names, but the, the idea of within Ken Lit is that it's sort of overtaken by that same type of institution. Um, yeah. And that to fight your way in, it is against a sort of patriarchal overstructure. But just mm -hmm. because it's a patriarchal overstructure doesn't mean that it's all men. But yeah, like, so I think, for example, the stuff that you're doing with a Beautiful Ken Lit uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is very interesting in that way, because what you're doing is you're taking a, and I, I've just looked at it today, so I didn't get to see a lot of the tweets, but you're taking a very sardonic look 
at the sort of the Canlit institution structure that is poking, prodding, really kind of pushing buttons. How do you see yourself acting within Canlit as a whole? You mean me as myself or in, as that account? Uh, let's see that account first. Yeah, I mean, that's been a funny experience. I started it as this sort of, I just wanted to make my friends laugh. And I think I followed like three people and I just tweeted like 50 times in a row, like really manically. And then people started to notice, I think it was like the picture of Margaret Atwood was kind of floating around and I was keeping it a secret who I was. And then the guesses started coming out and it was all, I won't name names either, but it was this group of men that are you know sort of infamous men of my generation. And then people started guessing men from a generation above me. And they were so certain that they were reading the tweets as if they were posted by these guys and getting really upset and really offended. And I think the moment that I had to reveal who I was, was I was tweeting about being groomed by professors as a young female student. And people thought that I was poking fun at this situation from the perspective of the older authoritative man. And it was just blowing up and I was being like quote tweeted by some of the scariest people to me, <laughs> like just, you know, the people with all the power and all the opinions. And I never thought they would be even reading them. So I kind of, I, I said it was me and miraculously never thought this would happen. All of the people that were mad at me were like, oh, it's fun, Parker. That's okay. <laughs> and that was probably the most flattering moment of my life was that I got the pass. I don't know why I didn't deserve it. But so far, fingers crossed, I haven't gotten in too much trouble. I try to, I try to ride the line. You know, I don't want to say anything about anyone in particular. I don't name any names except Christian Book. He's my one hall pass. Um, <laughs> otherwise, I, you know, <laughs> try to keep things restrained. <laughs> Don't listen to this, Christian. <laughs> How do you see yourself now fitting within this Canlet structure? That I don't know. I think, or okay, the way I like to see myself is that I try to give as much as I take. Um, and I don't know how successful that's been, but I feel like I'm somebody who's been very, very lucky and supported by incredible people and given incredible opportunities. And I've fallen into a lot of lucky opportunities and so I try to sort of karmically make sure that that's balancing out as much as it can. So I'd love to, you know, write blurbs for people. I like to help with edits and grant reports. And until this year, I finally crossed over into the dark side where now I charge people. I used to try to do as much work as I could for free. So I do like manuscript consults and I'd write grants for people and write query letters for people. And it just felt like a nice way of sort of balancing that out because so much of the luck in the community isn't something that you can buy as a service. It's like friendships and mentorships. So yeah, hopefully I like to see the rest of my life working the same way. I know that we get busier and busier as time goes on, but I think giving free labor whenever you can in a community like this is the most important thing. More important than, you know, getting big awards or huge hardcover books. I don't even know what we all want. I don't know what we're all aiming for, but whatever it is, it's less important than the people. I totally agree. Totally, <laughs> totally agree. So last question, uh, what's next for Fawn Parker? What's next for Fawn Parker? I have, okay, so the poetry book in the fall. I have a novel coming out in the spring of next year. Um, I haven't had a novel coming out in the spring. Yeah, with uh, with MS. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's very exciting. Um, finishing my PhD and uh, I'm getting divorced. You're hearing it here first. <laughs> How do you okay. feel about the process? Are you uh, in a sad space are you in a good space are you i'm in a good space mark perfect so i'm going to say congratulations thank you <laughs> <laughs> so congratulations for everything that you're 
accomplishing, including the divorce. Uh, I know that's going to be a lot of work. And thank you again so much, Bon Parker. For thank you so much. At Tea House. And I look forward so much to all the work that you're going to be doing in the future. It's thank be, you. I cannot wait. We hope you enjoyed this interview of Von Parker by Mark Herman Lynch. I am Mahmoud Ababni and you are listening to Tea House Talks. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and the Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Shu Yunyu, Rebecca Gillane, Micah Jacobson, Shazia Hafiz, Mark Herman Lynch, Ryan Stern, and me, Mahmoud Ababne. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tia House Talks. For more on the works of Tia House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you would like to be in touch, send us an email at tiahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.